This is The Guardian. Welcome to Politics Weekly America. I'm Jonathan Friedland. We now have war in Europe on a scale and of a, and of a type we thought belonged to history. Russia has invaded Ukraine. Vladimir Putin authorized a special military operation. President Vladimir Putin is calling this a, quote, special military operation to protect Donbass. Russia's response will be immediate and lead you to such consequences that you have never faced in your history. Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, he went on Facebook again to address the nation. We are strong, he told them. We are ready for anything and we will defeat everyone because we are Ukraine. Putin chose this war, and now he and his country will bear the consequences. That's how the invasion of a sovereign nation, how war in Europe, sounds in 2022. Russia's invasion of Ukraine is first a crisis for the Ukrainian people and for the continent of Europe, of course. But it's also a crisis for the President of the United States who you heard at the very end there, addressing the American people from the East Room of the White House on Thursday evening. The pressure remains very much on Joe Biden and his administration, with the expectation that any Western response to Vladimir Putin's action will inevitably be led by Washington. In his speech, the American president stepped forward to announce a new set of sanctions. These ones will target four more Russian banks that were not included in the first wave, including VTB, which is Russia's second largest bank. And later in the evening, there came word that 7,000 more US troops will be heading to Germany to bolster the American and NATO presence in Europe. But will all that be enough? If it isn't, What other options does Joe Biden have? And does he share any blame for this situation? Should he and the president he served, Barack Obama, have done more when Putin grabbed Crimea back in 2014? Well, I wanted to put all this to someone who's been at the sharp end of these decisions. Ivo Dulder is a former US ambassador to NATO. He's currently president of the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. And I began by asking him how he thought Joe Biden would be approaching this gravest of hours. If you think back about past presidents uh, facing situations like this, you really only have one other, George H.W. Bush, when the Gulf War happened back in, in, in 1990. Uh, and I think uh, Biden is, is that kind of person, someone who was vice president for eight years, has now been in office for a year, and he is very steeped in sort of European... Russian, Ukrainian uh, policy and politics from the, the time of the Cold War through the end of the Cold War in the past 30 years. He knows Vladimir Putin. He knows all the key players in Europe. And so I think we're, we're fortunate to have someone like him at this particular moment with the team steeped in, in Atlanticism and in thinking through how to work with our European allies. And I think quite sober from the very beginning about who Vladimir Putin is and what he represents and the danger and the threat, in fact, that he poses to European security. And you mentioned the team there. Just again, talk us through how that works 
uh, what will be happening in the White House right now? Who will be surrounding Joe Biden? Who will be counseling him? Who will he be talking to? Clearly, the people who will be there, starting with the vice president, who uh, he has said will, will always be in every meeting. The key people, however, are number one, the secretary of state, uh, Antony Blinken. It's my responsibility to do everything I can to try diplomatically to prevent a war. And so I will leave no stone unturned to do that. Blinken grew up in, in, in Paris uh, as a affluent uh, Europe speaker, if, as well as a French speaker. Then the second person really close to Biden is the national security advisor, uh, Jake Sullivan, a person who was also served as, as national security advisor to Vice President Biden, probably one of the smartest people walking around in Washington. He has a very strong team at defense with uh, Secretary of Defense uh, Lloyd Austin, and key intelligence people, uh, including the CIA director, Bill Burns, who was a former ambassador to Russia. So you have a, a coterie of people who really know this part of the world, who have spent much of their career thinking about these issues and how to deal with it. So it is, as you say, a huge amount of experience in the room. You yourself have huge experience in this area. You're a specialist. You are a specialist in European security. And we're on the Security Council in the administration going back to Bill Clinton, as well as having obviously been uh, ambassador to NATO itself. If you were in those conversations, what would you now be advising? What would be your contribution to that discussion for how America should respond to this extraordinary development? So I think the most important thing uh, is for us to reconceptualize our engagement uh, in, in Europe and indeed in the world, to think anew about how we position ourselves uh, in the best possible way. Uh, we haven't seen something like this since 1945. We were able to uh, stave it off during the Cold War. And we then created a post-Cold War system, a European security system that was fundamentally based on a whole set of principles, principles like borders don't get changed by force. And those principles have been violated in, in, in a fundamental way. And it's not enough to say, oh, tuh, tuh, you know, hopefully that'll change. No, we need to now understand that we're dealing with a Russia, we're dealing with a, a leader in Russia who is bent on revising uh, the very order that we have created in the last 30 years. And before we can get back to that order, we really need to make sure he does not succeed. So what does that mean? First and most importantly, support Ukraine. The next few weeks and months, we hard on the people of Ukraine. Putin has unleashed a great pain on them. Economically, politically, humanitarianly, and militarily. Ukraine is not going to be able to fend off this invasion. Uh, it will be occupied territory, all or part of it. But then it's time for resistance. So to be specific, you're thinking there, what, of arming Ukraine, not, not involving American troops themselves, but helping Ukraine defend itself? Help, help, help Ukraine defend itself with material, with intelligence. We have very good intelligence, as we know, because basically we publicized all of this over the last few months, and it's all come to the fore. We know where the Russians are. We can provide that information. So that's number one. Number two is the sanctions that, that will be announced in the course of the next few days. We've already seen the impact of our actions on Russia's currency and the ruble, which early today hit its weakest level ever, ever in history. And those sanctions really are designed to impose a very severe cost on the Russian economy. Financially, we will limit Russia's ability to do business in dollars, euros, pounds, and yen. 
through uh, excluding uh, uh, Russian banks, including hopefully the central bank and sovereign wealth funds from the international financial system through export controls uh, that will make it very difficult for Russia to and Russian firms to uh, to build basically anything and to import a lot of stuff that they uh, that they rely on uh, and uh, going after uh, Putin, his family and his cronies and their family, including in Britain, uh, finally taking care of all this this money that is sloshing around in London. Uh, and, and then thirdly, importantly, really beefing up NATO uh, and, the, and the presence in the East. NATO was more united and more determined than ever. The very thing that Putin has been talking about uh, resenting so much is now necessary I'm talking about tens of thousands of Army, Navy, and Air Force troops to defend the Baltic states first and foremost, which are exposed. And then finally, political isolation is extremely important. You know, UEFA's decision to move the, the Championships League final out of St. Petersburg is one step, but at the UN, at NATO, in the G7, and a whole variety of other forums to make sure that the people understand this is not behavior that is acceptable in the 21st century, and uh, a high price needs to be paid. Let me come back, if not push back, on just a couple of those points. The first one is about sanctions. Sanctions work if the leader in charge of a country cares, if his people suffer. And I don't think Putin does care. And I note the sanctions that are were imposed, are imposed on Assad in Damascus or in the regime in Tehran, those regimes are still standing and still in place even after many years of sanctions. And then on the other hand, you think about um, the the West's hard power and realising actually there too, and I take your point about not getting involved directly, but it's an amazing thought that the United States has the biggest arsenal the world has ever seen assembled, history has ever seen, and yet it knows that it can't tangle with the Russians in Ukraine because... Vladimir Putin himself, in just the last few hours, has warned against interference, saying that Russia is a powerful nuclear state, meaning back off because, you know, the ultimate sanction is available. Just putting those two things together, doesn't it add up to actually a kind of powerlessness on the side of the United States and even of the wider West? It means that today we're not going to be able to do anything to change course or even tomorrow. But over time, things do change. Uh, Sanctions may not always be successful, but sometimes they are, particularly when they are imposed in in a pretty multilateral and and, and unified uh, manner. Uh, Look at Serbia, uh, where there was a change uh, with, uh, as a result of sanctions. And of course, look at South Africa and the end of apartheid. So it's not that sanctions don't work. They take a long time to work. But don't they only work when the leader is sensitive to public opinion, which Putin just isn't? Yes, he's not sensitive, but the question is, are the Russian people sensitive to this? Uh, and, and, and are they willing to take matters into their own hands, which is what happens in, in these regimes, and sometimes successfully, often not. I'm not saying, I'm not predicting the end of Putinism anytime soon, although I think the measures he's taken in the last 10 years shows that he's worried about his uh, hold over, over the Russian people. Uh, it's why Navalny is in, in jail. It's why he has systematically eliminated the opposition that exists within his own country. And repression can, you know, can work, but, uh, but, uh, but only so far and only for so long. If we want a real model, of course, uh, of this, it's the Soviet Union itself, which, because of pressure internally, uh, was able uh, to change, uh, and no one thought that was possible. So I, I, I see the point that this is going to take time, and that's why I think 
we need this, you know, gestalt shift, this change in way to think about it. This is not about we're not doing business as usual today, but we'll go back to business as usual sometime in the future. That's really not what we're about. Understood. I mean, I just suppose this point about time, though, is that the one thing the Ukrainians, those people who are literally looking at bombs falling out of the sky, shells coming out of the sky now, is the one thing Ukrainians don't have is time. And I suppose I'm mindful of the fact they've been asking for help since at least 2014, haven't they? I agree, Jonathan. And I think I think we, we in history will have to take a look at what is the, I think, the most important decision we made early on when we found out the plans that Putin was after, so late October or sometime at that point, when we said we were not going to send troops. I mean, the way we could have prevented this is to have risked the very thing that we were unwilling to risk, which is to send significant military reinforcements into Ukraine uh, in order to basically uh, call Putin's bluff. Because he may threaten nuclear weapons uh, against us, but the reality is if he does, he's not going to survive himself. Not that we want to get into thinking about a nuclear exchange, which is something we hoped we, that we wouldn't have to think about for a, a long time now. Um, but but, but there are two who can tango. We decided, and I think the politics in the United States and certainly the politics within the NATO alliance would have made a military commitment to defend Ukraine, which was not a member of NATO, uh, prior to the attack, a very difficult one. So that was uh, the outcome. Uh, what I but do. Hang on. So let, just so I'm clear on your idea, your thought is that actually a while ago there could have been NATO boots on the ground inside Ukraine to defend it and to deter a Russian invasion or attack. Yeah. And I, uh, you know, frankly wasn't in favor of that myself. So I'm not saying that that's what we should have done. I'm saying that if we really wanted to prevent or enhance the chances to prevent this, uh, what happened. That was the way to do it. There was no other way. The recognition that Russia cared more about Ukraine than we did for geography and history and all the kinds of realities that we faced means that if he wanted to invade, he could. Now the question is, how do you raise the cost on Russia? And while it is certainly true that Russia has, uh, with 190,000 troops, has the capacity to inflict severe damage on the Ukrainian military and indeed occupy a lot, if not all, of Ukraine, once it has done so, you know, the cost will start to rise on the Russians and body bags will start going home. The role that the Ukraine has that we have in, in helping Ukraine is to increase the cost on the Russians to, to uh, and by cost, I mean, killing Russian soldiers. Horrible as the prospect is, it does change the internal dynamics, even for someone uh, as much in control uh, as Vladimir Putin is, is uh, of his country. You made um, the observation that actually, even though you weren't yourself advocating NATO boots on the ground, then maybe it would have been the one way to prevent this. I noticed uh, President Obama's former director of national intelligence, James Clapper, has said, I think just in the last day or so, I wish we were more aggressive with Russia back in 2014. Uh, I mean, is it now the case that the Obama administration, and obviously President Biden was part of it as vice president, has to admit that, yes, it got it wrong in allowing uh, the annexation by Russia of Crimea to go ahead, in effect, unpunished. Did, was that a big mistake? Well, it wasn't quite unpunished, but yes, it was a big mistake. Uh, and and uh, many of us argued so at the time. Uh, it was uh, extremely important 
to have provided much more military assistance to the Ukrainians. Uh, you know, it was a big debate in late 2014, early 2015, uh, in particular about whether to provide lethal defensive aid like javelins and anti-tank weapons. And it was uh, Angela Merkel and Barack Obama who opposed that. Uh, they, uh, they, their view uh, was that we should not do anything to provoke Russia further. And I think in, in retrospect, this wasn't about provoking Russia. Uh, this was about uh, uh, making sure that Russia's, uh, the cost to Russia were significantly higher than they thought it would be. And indeed, one of the reasons why a further offensive in late 14, early 15 didn't occur when the f- Russian forces seemed to be pushing to Mariupol, uh, the, por- the port uh, that would have provided a land bridge to Crimea, was because the Ukrainian army was starting to fight back, in part because of some of the equipment uh, countries were providing, particularly the Poles and the Balts, indicating that Russia was perhaps not prepared to, to uh, suffer the cost uh, of, a major, of a major war. And so if we had pushed harder at that point, we might have been able to prevent it, uh, prevent it at this time. What about in 2021? To what extent do you think President Biden's withdrawal from Afghanistan sent a message to Vladimir Putin that America, maybe the wider West, doesn't have the stomach for a fight anymore. Yeah, I think uh, I, I think the disagreement with the NATO about this issue, which sort of strengthened the the sense that that the alliance was in disarray after four really terrible years facing a, a U.S. president who not only wasn't interested in NATO, was actively trying to undermine it. But twenty three of the twenty eight member nations are still not paying what they should be paying and what they are supposed to be paying for their defense. Plus, I, you know, the raucous over AUKUS, the, uh, the, the submarine deal. I am uh, honored today to be joined by two of America's closest allies, Australia and the United Kingdom, to launch a new phase of the trilateral security cooperation among our countries. With the Australians and, and the way the French were treated, created a sense that even though Biden in the beginning seemed to be the guy who, who would be able to, to, to put the alliance together, a sense was created that perhaps he wasn't, wasn't able to do that. Uh, the internal political turmoil in the United States doesn't help. Uh, and of course, you had uh, weakness in, in, in Britain in the post-Brexit period. Uh, that uh, didn't really uh, mean that, that uh, too many people in Moscow were paying attention to what London was going to do. You had Merkel leaving. You had Macron uh, running for re-election. So, yeah, I do think that Putin believed that this was the time to strike, that the West was weak, was divided, and that he could just uh, uh, made a fait complete out of it. I, I think he miscalculated. Well, let's just focus for a second on those internal political divisions inside the United States. Earlier this week, before the actual invasion was underway, we had Donald Trump, Joe Biden's predecessor, praising Vladimir Putin, calling him a genius and singling out his savvy. I said, how smart is that? And he's going to go in and be a peacekeeper. That's the strongest peace force. We could use that on our southern border. You have Tucker Carlson on Fox News offering quite a few pro-Russia talking points. And on Wednesday, the Washington Post ran an alarming uh, piece that discussed a poll that shows Republicans view the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, more favourably than they do President Joe Biden. What do you make of all that? And let's start with this point about Donald Trump offering that praise earlier in the week for Vladimir Putin, calling him a genius. 
Because I'm thinking of your tweet. You did tweet about this. <laughs> well, I said, I think that, that, that Putin is pure, pure evil. I think we're seeing that uh, uh, playing out. Uh, uh, this, this has nothing to do with smartness, savviness, or genius. Uh, I'll leave it at there. I do think that the political division in this country uh, is severe. It undermines our capacity uh, uh, to, to lead uh, effectively. And more importantly, it, it, it sends the message that we are too divided to act uh, in concert. I think Vladimir Putin is now realizing that uh, and will continue to realize that we're wrong. I do think that we have a, a president uh, and much of the Republican Party uh, that will uh, stand behind a united uh, response to uh, to this unprovoked uh, and unprincipled attack uh, by Vladimir Putin. Uh, we've had statements from Republican leaders coming out. Uh, and, and if there are some in the Republican Party uh, who continue to want to embrace Vladimir Putin, that's not where the vast majority of Americans are. Uh, in a crisis like this, we stand together. Uh, and in this case, we stand with Ukraine. What do you say to those Republicans who say, well, you know, you may not like Donald Trump's language, but this didn't happen on his watch. Vladimir Putin backed off in the time when Trump was in the White House. He did Crimea when Obama was there. He's gone into Ukraine when Biden's there. What do you say to that? Yeah, well, this is, of course, the same president who was impeached by uh, denying military assistance to Ukraine to pay domestic political power with it. So I, I, I think uh, the reason why we uh, have these things have very little to do with Donald Trump and everything to do with Vladimir Putin. Do you think the result of all this is that despite his best efforts to focus on everything else, including coronavirus and rebuilding America's economy and infrastructure, tackling the climate crisis, Joe Biden is going to be remembered as a wartime president? I think, unfortunately, uh, uh, the geopolitics uh, that, uh, that now confront President Biden are such that he will have to think about how do we deal with Russia and set in motion a new strategy, a new framework uh, for dealing with a world that is fundamentally transformed when the first bombs rained on Kyiv uh, overnight. Ivo Dulda, thank you so much for joining me on Politics Weekly America. My pleasure, Jonathan. And that's all from me on this, our first outing as Politics Weekly America. If you liked it, please do make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast and generally spread the word. But if you're wanting more on the Russia-Ukraine crisis, do listen to Politics Weekly UK, where John Harris and others take you through Boris Johnson's response to the Kremlin's decision to invade and why this moment has forced the government to reassess how much influence Russian money should have on the British economy. But for now, it's goodbye. The producer is Danielle Stevens, and the executive producer today was Max Sanderson with help from Maz Ebtahaj. I'm Jonathan Friedland. Thanks, as always, for listening. This is The Guardian. 